Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom Podcast, the place where moms just like you are empowered with all the knowledge, skills, and tools you need to discover, pursue, and fulfill your personal life mission while still putting motherhood first. Welcome to this Facebook Live training, The Three Keys of Clear Thinking. We're going to talk for a few minutes about what each of these three keys are, and I'm going to tell you the story of an incredible woman who really exemplifies these three keys of clear thinking. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm a blogger, speaker. I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life, which is a book you can get for free over at themissiondrivenmom.com. And uh, I'm the founder of The Mission Driven Mom, which is an organization that empowers moms to find and fulfill their personal life mission while still putting motherhood first. I'm super excited that you're here. I want to start with a quote by Albert Einstein. He said, the significant problems we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. So I'm going to read that one more time. The significant problems we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. So this is something that uh, we often run into as human beings. We've been on a certain path. We've done things a certain way. We learned certain patterns and habits as kids, and that's kind of how we do things. It worked at home, it worked with our parents or in whatever context we were using our thinking skills. And then we find later in life that we aren't always getting the results that we want. And we're not sure why that's the case. So we're gonna talk for a few minutes um, about three things that you can do that will help your thinking become very clear about whatever problem it is that you're currently working on. So this is a book that we use in the Mission Driven Mom uh, Academy, the MDM Academy, one of the many awesome books. And it's about Immaculate Eligua Giza. And I don't, I'm gonna give you a super brief synopsis of her life and the situation that she finds herself in, in case you're not familiar with it or you might have forgotten some of the details and show you how her habits of clear thinking totally transformed her life when all the other people around her were in exactly the same situation or worse situation after this tragedy. So she's, from, she's a survivor of the 96, I think, Rwandan Holocaust. And there was an uprising in the 50s and an uprising in the 70s. It was about every 20 years that there was this ongoing conflict in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Now, there are three, there are these three cultural types in Rwanda, the Twa, the Hutu, and the Tutsi. And the Twa got there first 2,000 years ago, and then the Hutus showed up, and later on the Tutsis showed up like 500 years ago. And the, we're talking about left to tell, and so we're talking about the Rwandan Holocaust. And so if you've just joined us, so in 96, so what happened was the Tutsis came in, they kind of took over everything. They were kind of in charge of everybody and nobody really liked that, that they were in charge. And so the Hutus built up a lot of resentment towards the Tutsis. And eventually when colonization happened, the, uh, who was it? the Belgians, I think, came in, took over the government, 
and kicked out the Tutsis and put the Hutus in power. And there were all these ongoing resentments between the two groups, even though they share the same religion, they share most of the same history, um, they look a little bit different. It, they even speak the same language. But there was all this resentment around their relationships with each other. And so um, it just, it just, I can't even tell you all the things that led up to it. But basically, there was this, the Tutsis had been kicked out of the country and the Hutus were in charge. And with the help of the, the French kind of helped train some of these kids. Anyway, they basically armed their populace and told them to go out and kill Tutsis. And then the UN pulled out and other civilized nations wouldn't help. And so for about three months, uh, near the end of the third month, things got better and the French came in. But for most of that time, it was free reign and it was literally killing fields. In, in 90 days, they killed a million Tutsis. And so Immaculate's in the middle of this and she comes from this really well-educated family and they actually have an opportunity to escape. They don't realize it's gonna be their only opportunity and they don't do anything about it because the dad just loves everybody, sees everybody as equal. He doesn't wanna do anything about it. And so they don't leave. And eventually she winds up hiding in a pastor's bathroom. It's a little tiny, uh, like three by four bathroom. And there's seven women in there for, for 90 days. They have almost nothing to eat. They never change their clothes. There's a toilet that they can use, but they can only flush it when the other one on the other side of the wall is flushed. And they have to remain completely silent. They are not allowed to speak a word to each other um, because the house keeps being raided by the Hutus and they're trying to find all the Tutsis that may have gotten left and, and hadn't been killed yet. And in fact, some people noticed that Immaculate hadn't been killed in her small village and so they were actually hunting for her. And so she's locked in this bathroom and she can't talk to anybody. And she's on the floor and she has a little girl on her lap because they had to sit on each other's laps to even have space. Every once in a while they stand up and move around a little bit, but that's really all that goes on in this bathroom for 90 days. And she has the most tremendous mental battle I think that any human being could ever ask for. She knows that she's being hunted. She can hear uh, the Hutus all around the house, right outside the bathroom window. She can hear them in the house. Um, she can hear them searching for, the, for whoever might be hiding in the house. And she, the only way she makes it through is that she prays 15 hours a day. She has a rosary and she goes around the rosary over and over and over again. And then she just talks to God nonstop. And of course, she, she doesn't know for sure until she leaves, but she's pretty sure that everyone else in her family is dead. Her uh, four brothers and her parents, or her three brothers. And um, she finds out later, not only that they are all dead, but how they were killed. And so she's in this bathroom, she can't do anything but think. And she's got to figure out a way to not be lost in despair. And she watches these other women as their eyes kind of become glazed over. They think she's kind of, they can hear her kind of, she moves her mouth to mouth her prayers. And they know kind of what she's doing and they just think she's kind of insane. 
uh, or crazy with what she's doing. And so I'm going to read you some excerpts from this book, and then we're going to talk for a minute about the tools that she used in order to not only maintain her sanity, but to come out of that crisis, one of the only people that was whole and that went on to not only lead a happy life, but to have worldwide impact. So the first big battle that she confronts is forgiveness, as you can imagine. She knows probably that her family's been killed. She knows these people are trying to hunt her. She's watched some really gruesome things happen. She's heard them tell really gruesome stories from outside uh, the window. She has a pretty good idea what's going, going on. And it's not just gunshot. I mean, that would be that would be so much more humane. Most of them have machetes. And you can imagine the kind of damage that they're doing with machetes. And so she's in the bathroom and one night she, she hears a struggle outside and she knows that a family's been killed and a baby has been left there, not killed, intentionally just as an act of cruelty so that it will suffer because evil is really just in full rage. And she listens to the baby cry all night and all day and another night. She doesn't sleep very much because she doesn't consume a lot of calories. And so she, does, she only sleeps for a few hours. So she listens to this go on. And finally, she's talking to God about it. And she realized that he must have slain the mother and left the baby to die. And she had already been having this huge struggle with, with forgiveness. She realized that she was, she, was, she was not being true to prayer and to God and to herself if she prayed for God to help her and she was unwilling to extend forgiveness. She knew that this was a problem. She had been praying like crazy that she would know what to do and how to forgive. And she talks about this battle that she has where she's like, let me pray for the orphans and the widows. Let me play, pray for justice. I will ask you to punish those wicked men, but I cannot forgive them. I just can't. It was no use. My prayers felt hollow. A war had started in my soul, and I could no longer pray to a God of love with a heart full of hatred. I tried again, praying for him to forgive the killers, but deep down I couldn't believe they had I couldn't believe that they deserved it at all. It tormented me. I prayed for them. I tried to pray for them myself, but I felt like I was praying for the devil. Please open my heart, Lord, and show me how to forgive. I'm not strong enough to squash my hatred. They've wronged us all so much. My hatred is so heavy that it could crush me. So that's the point that she's at when she hears this baby cry all day and all night and the next day. So she gets to this point where she says to God, how can I forgive people who would do such a thing to an infant? And this is one of the tools of clear thinking. And we're going to go over in just a second. So I want you to pay attention to the fact that she asked a question and the type of question that she asked. I heard his answer as clearly as if we'd been sitting in the same room chatting. You are all my children and the baby is with me now. And she said, that was it. That's exactly what she needed to hear and to understand. The killers were like children. Yes, they were barbaric creatures who would have to be punished severely for their actions, but they were still children. In God's eyes, the killers were part of his family, deserving of love and forgiveness. I knew that I couldn't ask God to love me 
if I were unwilling to love his children. At that moment, I prayed for the killers for their sins to be forgiven. I prayed that God would lead them to recognize the horrific error of their ways before their life on earth ended, before they were called to account for their mortal sins. That night, I prayed with a clear conscience and a clean heart. For the first time since I'd entered the bathroom, I slept in peace. That was about a month in. So a couple things have happened so far that are the first two tools of clear thinking. The first one is about principles. She recognized that she was full of hatred, that her mind, and if, if you were to have read the previous 30 pages, you would see just how much this was a mental battle going on and on and raging in her, and she couldn't see herself clearly, and she couldn't see the killers clearly, and she couldn't see the situation clearly, she couldn't see her way out of it, she couldn't see what needed to happen in the future until she got herself in line with this true and important principle. And principles are key to clear thinking in two ways. First of all, the more clearly, the more, the more in line our lives are with principle, the more clearly we see everything and everyone, including ourselves. C.S. Lewis put it a really cool way. He said that the closer, he said the further away we get from God, the more duped we become about how godlike we are. But the closer we come to God, the more the distance is clear. The more the difference between who he is and what he does and who we are and what we do becomes very clear to us. Um, this is what Immaculate said. She said, only when you forgive can you be objective and really see the other person and the situation clearly. Now, there are other principles she got her life in line with, not just forgiveness, but that was a huge one and probably the most important one in the situation in which she was in. And so it gave her tremendous power. And as you read through the rest of her story and you see, as soon as they're let out of the bathroom, everywhere she goes, she's seen as the leader. Everyone turns to her. They don't even know why. But her vision is clear. She sees herself and she sees the killers clearly. She still hides from them when necessary. She still protects herself when necessary, but she is so full of confidence. She is so full of the love of God. She is so full of love for them that she has this incredible power to influence the people around her and to lead in every situation that she's in. And she talks about how people would often say, you know, how can you how can you forgive them? How can you, you know, let go? And one of the things that she realized, I'll read you this little part from the book. Um, she gets out of the bathroom and she goes to this camp. The French come in and they um, they have these little, I don't know, these little, they set up these little camps. So if you're a Tootsie and you can manage to get yourself there, they'll protect you. And so they managed to get themselves there um, in the middle of the night and one of the soldiers, in fact, the captain approaches her. He really likes her. He can see that she's a good woman and that she is a leader and he really likes her. He really cares about her. And so he says, he comes up to her and he says, I'll kill any Hutu you want me to. He was so eager to kill that he didn't let me finish my sentence. He said, if there's a Hutu you know, you know about in this camp, tell me and I'll shoot them myself. I hate them all. She says, well, Hutus aren't evil, Captain. It's just these killers. They've been tricked by the devil. They've wandered away from God and Immaculate. Hutus are evil. 
What they've done is evil. Don't tell me that this is God's will or the work of the devil. It's the work of the Hutus, and they'll pay for it. If you change your mind, let me know. I don't offer to kill for just anyone you know. And then she goes on to say, I prayed that God would touch the captain's heart with his forgiveness, and I prayed again for the killers to put down their machetes and beg for God's mercy. The captain's anger made me think that the cycle of hatred and mistrust in Rwanda would not easily be broken. There would certainly be even more bitterness after the killing stopped, bitterness that could easily erupt into more violence. Only God's divine forgiveness could stop that from happening now. I could see that whatever path God put me on, helping others to forgive would be a big part of my life's work. Why? Because she thinks clearly, because she's put herself in line with a principle. This is, you know, we could talk about forgiveness all day. In fact, we do talk about it in level one of the academy. Um, because resentment is a killer. We hang on to we hang on to that. We resent other people all the time for stuff that they don't even intend to do, let alone killing our entire family and our almost our entire race. So she's put herself um, in a position where she can see clearly because she's in line with the principles. The other side of being principle-centered and principles being a key to clear thinking is to understand that there's a God and he created this world and he created it in line with natural laws and true principles. And because he did that, he did that for our benefit so that we could learn and align our lives with those principles. And, and as we do so, we can trust that he's going to always help us obey them. He's going to always help us get ourselves in line with his laws. And so when we try to get ourselves in a better position in any area of our lives, principles always reign. And so when we take the time to discover those principles and try to put our lives in line with those principles, we can trust that he is on our side and that he is going to open the way. You know, Immaculate pa prayed about forgiveness nonstop for a week. And when she finally did the second tool, the second key of clear thinking, and that was she asked an empowering question. For a lot of the time before she, um, she but when she was thinking about forgiveness, praying for forgiveness, she kept saying really disempowering things to herself. She kept saying, I can't forgive. It's too hard. I just can't do it. And the moment that she turned it around and she asked herself an empowering question, the answer came. Now, I got turned on to this idea. There's a whole video on it um, and some exercises on it in, in the level one of the academy. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail here, but Keith Cameron Smith is the one that turned me on to, to the idea of the power of empowering questions because this is the context that he put it in. It just was mind-blowing for me. He explained that our minds are, he didn't say it quite this way, but this is this is kind of my understanding. Our brains are problem-solving machines. Our brains can't move away from something. They can only move towards something. And so whatever fuel we give them, they'll work on it. They always want to solve a problem. And so what, what, what Keith Cameron Smith explains is that when Jesus says, ask and you shall receive, he's not giving like a suggestion or a good idea. He's stating a natural law. And that natural law is, when you ask a question, you get an answer, period. Because that is how we have been created. 
that as we ask questions, we will get answers to our questions. Why are my kids so mean to me? Why isn't my marriage working? Why can't I lose any weight? So we're always presented in life with problems and we always have the ability to ask ourselves questions about those problems and we can ask ourselves disempowering questions or empowering questions. And that word power is so important because that's where the power comes from. So the minute she said, how can I forgive? Instead of, this is too hard, they've killed my family, I can't do it. She got her heart in the right place and she asked an empowering question and then the answer came. So when we start to, I'm gonna give you another example of this in her life um, when she uses empowering questions and then she uses the third key of clear thinking and that is visualizing. God calls it uh, an eye of faith because ultimately clear thinking is faithful thinking. It's making sure that everything in our lives is in line with one idea, that we don't get down on our knees and pray for something and then stand back up and talk the opposite about it. So like you kneel down and you say, well, please help me, blah, blah, blah. And then you stand up and either you're not willing to do any work or everything that comes out of your mouth is, well, I don't think it's gonna work out or I don't see how that could happen or I don't know or I doubt it. Clear thinking is faithful thinking, and it's when everything that we think, say, and do is in line with a specific principle that God is gonna help us live, a specific goal that has been inspired by him, a specific desire that we know is his desire for us in our lives, because it's a good, righteous thing to want, to desire. So um, she becomes a master at visualizing and asking empowering questions. Um, she, she has this, this picture at one point of, and I don't have, we're running out of time. I don't have time to get into the whole thing. She has, she, she gets this answer in the bathroom that she is to work at the UN when she gets out. She feels clear that that's what she's to do. And by a miracle, there happen to be English books in the house. And so for three weeks, she teaches herself English 24 seven in it and it keeps her in a good place. And so she's, she's always using her mind. She's always focusing forward. She's, she's always, she always knows what she wants next, what she needs next. And it, it just brings her hope. Like she's always in that hopeful, optimistic frame of reference because she's focused on a key principle she's trying to live or a key goal she's trying to obtain. She's visualizing it and she's asking herself empowering questions about it. So she gets out by all these miracles. She winds up back at the Capitol and she's in a safe home being cared for. And she knows she's supposed to work at the UN, which is a walking, which is a, within walking distance. So all these things kind of the stars have aligned for her to be able to do this. So she's like, okay, great, here we go. I've been visualizing this. And so now I'm going to go work at the UN. So she goes down to the UN and she says, okay, well, I want a job here. So what do I need to do? They're like, okay, we'll fill out all this paperwork. She fills out all the paperwork and she sits there and waits and waits and waits the entire day. And she says, uh, when the UN employees started leaving at the end of the day, I asked the receptionist how much longer I'd have to wait to get my job. You'll be waiting a long time, dear. There are no jobs. I went home disappointed, but not discouraged. It was my destiny to work at the UN. I had envisioned it and I was determined. If God wanted me to work there, nothing could stop me from reaching my goal. Perfect. 
She keeps visualizing it. She keeps working towards it. So she's willing to put in the work. So guess what she does? <laughs> she goes back the next day. For two weeks, she goes to the UN, she fills out paperwork in the morning, and she sits at the UN all day long until they close. And she's no closer to her goal. And by the end of the two weeks, she's pretty discouraged. She's like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And she says, I was getting pretty discouraged. I dreaded going back home without a job. I wandered the battered streets of Kigali neighborhood feeling sorry for myself. So she turns to God again. She prays again. She says, I know this is a righteous desire for you, that you have for me. She says, I don't know what to do. I have no money. My clothes are falling apart, and they won't give me a job. She also doesn't have the paperwork that proves that she went to college for three years, and she needs that paperwork to prove that she, that who she is and what she knows so that they'll hire her. It's back at the college that was blown up and burned down and where all the Tutsis were killed, okay? She has no idea what she's going to do. I brushed myself off and left the ruined home with renewed confidence. I'd asked God for his help, and now I knew it was up to me to make it happen. I began visualizing that I was already working at the UN. So here she is again. I know this is a righteous desire. I know this is what God wants for me. I'm going to stay in an optimistic frame of reference and just picture it to myself and ask myself empowering questions about how to get there. So she starts asking herself all these questions. She's like, okay, well, if I were really working at the UN, what would I need? And she realizes, okay, I, I need some nice clothes. I need the paperwork from the school. Uh, I need my high school diploma and my three years of university studies. And I have no money, no transportation to get to that other city. I have no idea where the papers are. The whole country has been destroyed. How in the world would I ever find them? On and on and on. But she just keeps visualizing, okay, so if I'm working at the UN, this is what it's going to look like. And how can I make that happen? And then, of course, a man pulls up that's a doctor that worked at the school that she knows. He gives her a ride back there. She goes to the, to, uh, she's able to get into campus by a sheer miracle. And she finds her room. It's been all blown up. And she says, I sorted through some of the papers on the floor and I couldn't believe what I saw. There in one big envelope, my high school diploma, my university progress report, and nearly $30 of my scholarship money that I tucked away. Suddenly I was rich and could prove that I was educated. So she goes and she buys herself new clothes and on and on and on. And then of course she goes for an interview and they turn her away. And she has all these points of quote failure, right? All these moments where she could have been done. She could have just quit. She could have quit the first day when she filled out the paperwork. She could have quit after two weeks of filling out paperwork. She could have quit when she went to the job interview and they turned her down and the lady was mean to her and told her she was never going to get a job. And of course, she, out, she worked at the UN <laughs> and she wrote her book and then she started up charitable organizations for, um, for orphans and has had worldwide impact because of her, because of her incredible story. So those three keys, as I went back through this book again, reviewing for um, the startup of the, of the Academy this fall, I was really just blown away at how those three keys repeated themselves over and over and over again. She kept, just kept doing that, just kept figuring out what it is 
that she needed to get her life in line with, what it was that needed to happen next, and then she would picture it, and then she would she would stay empowered. She would stay in a hopeful, faithful place by asking herself those empowering questions that helped her move forward. And her vision and her thinking remained clear as she stayed in line with principles and focused on living those principles. Um, when we utilize these three keys of clear thinking, our thoughts, our intentions, our words, and our actions all align. And we experience, we tap into incredible power that we didn't have before. Our universe, our world is a faithful world. James Allen talks about how it's not, it's not, um, un, what's the word? He says, justice is the ruling principle of the universe. Law and order are the governing principles. Righteousness is, is what this world was created with. So when you're in line, when you're optimistic, when you're faithful, when you're hopeful, then you have that power behind you. And as you envision and ask those empowering questions in order to live God's laws, then you will, you'll always accomplish what you set out to accomplish because you have God on your side. Thanks so much for joining me. To get your free copy of my ebook, The Mission Driven Life, visit themissiondrivenmom.com. And to dig deeper and become part of our community of mission-driven moms, join us in the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and check out the MDM Academy. See you next time.